Hello and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly. With you in studio, Amir Tibon. Later on today's episode, we'll hear from two Haaretz correspondents who recently returned from covering the war and refugee crisis in Ukraine and around it on the ground. What is it like right now to be a reporter in Ukraine in the midst of the war? How are people escaping the country? Who are the people arriving here in Israel? And also the not-so-secret Ukrainian recipe for Molotov cocktails. All of that coming up in a few minutes, but before that... As Israel emerged this weekend from the Shabbat, a period of time when the country is supposedly shut off, Israelis were shocked and surprised to find their Prime Minister Naftali Bennett in Moscow meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. What was that conversation all about? And can Bennett's mediation efforts between Russia and Ukraine actually yield results? To discuss that and other aspects of the war in Ukraine, we are joined by Amos Arel, Haaretz's Senior National Security Analyst. Hi, Amos. Hi, Amir. Great to have you with us again on the podcast. Uh, let's start, first of all, with this interesting, um, bit weird, and uh, maybe promising, you will tell us, the diplomatic mission by the Prime Minister. Is he actually mediating right now between Russia and Ukraine in the midst of this war that the entire world is glued to? In his dreams, Bennett is. How practical this is, how realistic is his mission, it's, it remains a, a little hard to tell. I think we'll have to wait and see. Is this completely his own initiative or was he invited by Zelensky or Putin to take this role? He managed to uh, receive an invitation from Putin. Uh-huh. Let's I see. Uh, put I it see. this way. <laughs> I, I don't think that this was uh, Putin's top priority. A few days ago, but uh, Bennett offered his services a couple of times, spoke to both sides quite a few times, uh, was in um, immediate contact for quite some time with um, Councillor Schultz. Schultz was here last Wednesday, if I'm not mistaken. This seems to be a sort of an Israeli and European initiative. Not There are not many chances that this would actually succeed, but they are trying to To do something about this I think the Americans are probably less enthusiastic about that although we haven't it's it's important to know that we haven't heard anything official um, from either the White House or the State Department about this whole uh, affair on the other hand Israel was not reprimanded I mean there was no um, American statement no official statement saying uh, we asked the Israelis to stay away or anything like that um, I'm not sure that this is completely coordinated the way uh, Bennett's people want us to to assume uh, I'm not sure that this is actually happening I think the, the Americans let him go ahead but were probably quite um, uh, suspicious of the outcome of this P- putting aside the perhaps the political personal motivations of Bennett the politician does Israel as a country have any kind of unique standing vis-a-vis this conflict that maybe creates an opportunity for it to speak to both sides? Look, we, we don't have any leverage, that's quite clear. A standing, well, there's a good relationship between Israel and Russia for quite some time, and something similar could be said about our uh, relationship with Ukraine. Um, other than that, I don't think that we're you know, more influential than uh, other countries or that the, there's much more at stake commercially 
um, uh, when you talk about Germany and Russia, for instance, or Germany and the Ukraine. Israel is a small country in the end. Uh, I think that Bennett has shown that he's quite uh, ambitious about the whole thing. He really wants to be frontline and center uh, on this, and he's trying, as I said, to, to leave his mark. Um, are they laughing at us in, in, in Moscow or in Kiev? I don't think so. I think uh, at least in Kiev, they're going to need all the help they can get. Yeah, I don't think many people in general are laughing in Kiev and Moscow these days uh, at all. That's, that, that's true. But I, I think we have to remain at least slightly cautious and a bit skeptic about the, the chances of these maneuvers succeeding. On the other hand, we, I have to, to, to hand it to him that he's, he's actually trying. He's trying to prevent a massacre, which is, you know, quite impressive, I think. So when we talk about what he's trying to prevent, some of the scariest scenarios related to this war have been mentioned in your recent excellent columns on Haaretz.com regarding the possibility of this conflict going nuclear. Is a cornered Putin a more dangerous Putin? Well, that's quite clear, I think. And it's quite clear also that he's doubling down, uh, considering all the, the pressure and the critical response from all over the world, the sanctions um, and so on. And I think anybody watching this from, from Tel Aviv or anywhere else can notice that this is Putin's show, that nobody else in Russia is calling these decisions. That's Putin and Putin alone. The worrying aspect, in my view, is the fact that he began talking nuclear. At least last week, there was the, all this talk about um, his order given to, to Russia's military forces to, to stay on higher alert, and he mentioned the nuclear forces as well. Um, and also, at one point or another, he was threatening the West, saying that uh, the outcome would be that you know, there would be blood on their hands or something like that, that they will see an outcome that has never been seen before. All of these remarks were seen as hints uh, towards a possible nuclear outcome, which is something that none of us thought possible just two or three weeks ago. Now, I talked to a top Israeli expert on Russian affairs, uh, Professor Dima Adamski from the Reichman University in Herzliya. And Professor Adamski, who I've known for years, has been an advisor to, to many governments, including the Israeli government, regarding Russia for quite some time. And he's, you know, our recent um, conversations during the last two weeks um, became more and more troubling because it was Adamski who kept emphasizing the possibility that actually Putin is serious about the nuclear aspect. This doesn't mean a nuclear war, that if we see anything like nuclear trials or the deployment of tactical nuclear weapons along the Russia-Ukraine border, this is a, a whole new game. I mean, this is very, very different than anything we've encountered in recent years. At least in Adamski's eyes, he said that this was the worst crisis, nuclear crisis, since the end of the Cold War. And more particularly, uh, 1983 was the last time that um, the, the two superpowers were at each other's throats regarding the possibility of some kind of a nuclear outcome. I'm not sure we're there yet, but I think this is part of the very grim uh, picture and this is why one of the reasons why so many people are worried about this. You know, this is a shallow, quite a, a, a shallow uh, metaphor. But I, I think in a way, there's a similarity with the COVID um, issue two years ago, the COVID crisis. It's like some kind of faraway thunder, which is um, gradually approaching us. And I, I think that we haven't realized yet 
how serious the implications can be for the, the whole world and also for Israel regarding everything from energy supply to wheat to maybe even some kind of uh, uh, nuclear damage to, to what's going on in international uh, mm-hmm. relations. This is much more serious than we thought before. Not, none of us thought that this would be local, but I think the, the implications would be far and wide. Hey, Amos, last question. We keep hearing about the a fear in Israel over uh, Putin's reactions in Syria if Israel uh, takes a stronger stand like other Western democracies against the Russian invasion. Uh, do you think that fear is exaggerated? Uh, I mean, when we talk about Putin limiting Israel's abilities to uh, make military strikes in Syria, what does that actually mean? Is he going to shoot down Israeli planes? Look, it's hard to tell. I don't think that the actual fear is exaggerated, but I think that we got our priorities wrong. I think that uh, Israel is ignoring its um, moral uh, duty to take a stand regarding the situation. It's true that in the end, we voted with most of the free world in condemnation of, uh, of Russia last week at the UN. But other than that, we're very slow to react. And this argument or justification that keeps on uh, being brought on the um, you know the, the, the fact that uh, we need the Russians in Syria we need to keep bombing in Syria we need uh, our airplanes to be uh, free and safe to do what they uh, need to do you know that's that's an important aspect for uh, Israel's uh, strategic stature but that's not everything there are so many other aspects here and I think that we see the same kind of Of attitude when we talk about um, accepting refugees from Ukraine and so on Israel keeps on acting as if there's a some double standard that allows us to behave differently than any other Western country and I don't think we're worthy of this I think in the end we have to behave like European countries I think our stand against Putin and Putin's actions needs to be more serious than that and I think that Syria is a problem but that's not the top priority that's not the most important thing in the world. When so many civilians are being attacked and so many people are being slaughtered just because Putin decided that it was his interest to to invade Ukraine at the moment. Interesting uh, observations there. Amos, thank you very much for joining us for this discussion. Thank you, Omil. Up next to our correspondents Jordan Michaeli and Judy Maltz on their experiences from covering the Ukraine war and refugee crisis on the ground. Our guests today to Haaretz correspondents who returned recently from the most interesting place in the world right now. Yerden Michaeli. Hey Amir. Great to have you here. Recently returned from Lvov inside Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And Judy Maltz. Hi Amir. Who just returned from a fascinating reporting trip to the border of Ukraine and Moldova. And Judy, I want to start with you. We're going to hear from both of you today about your experiences out on the field. The amazing stories that you heard over there, the people that you met. And Judy, the first question I want to ask you is actually about how you returned to Israel. Oh, very interesting. I returned on the first organized Aliyah flight to Israel since the Russian invasion, which was on February 24th. They are expecting, of course, thousands upon thousands of Jews to immigrate from Ukraine. Uh, this was really the beginning of this exodus. This is the beginning of what I guess we could call the biggest Aliyah wave since the The early 1990s. Yeah, this is uh, going to be quite a story. Yerden, you wrote several great stories for arts from your time inside Ukraine. 
And one of them was about a, a course you basically signed up for a, on how to prepare Molotov cocktails. Can you share the recipe with our audience? Yeah, uh, so I think that basically all of Ukraine is going through this course right now. Uh, the recipe, if you're interested, is one third and two thirds of petrol and oil. Uh, you can also use a used engine oil. They mix it with some styrofoam. So it's, they told us that to make it stick on the target so it doesn't go away uh, immediately. We visited one of those workshops and if you look for the exact recipe uh, you can find it on the instagram or twitter accounts and facebook accounts basically like the ukrainian police and they also broadcast it on tv what was We, it like uh, to cross the border right now into western ukraine from poland uh well it's it's a crazy experience i think like it's something that it's hard to describe in words like once you go inside you go past the passport checkpoint there's like a curtain That goes down on the atmosphere and everything you see around you you see groups of kids alone really small kids just running around like uh, you see like they're being transported to the border you see soldiers with weapons there's stress there's violence in the air all this atmosphere once we crossed to the other side we had all our equipment with us we couldn't go inside with the car we had to drop it to the border we started just walking like there was a 70 kilometers stretch that we had to To somehow make until the next city we were planning to arrive so you start walk this thing the temperatures they're around like zero degrees or something like that there's darkness coming down and after a few kilometers walking like that we met this huge 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 line of cars which was 40 kilometers long it's hard to describe like until you see it and they're all standing uh, we spoke with people there like there was this one person his name is Dima he was there for four and a half days in this line with his son like uh, people these are that, people trying to get out that's a week ago that's that's a Saturday a week ago the it's beginning this huge huge wave of this arc of this exodus which is the fastest outwards immigration in the past decades and you guys are going against the traffic in a sense you're going in yeah so this was part of the challenge because like we we went inside you see this line next to it, it's a two lanes uh, way and there's nobody going in the direction in which we were going this was a challenge for us personally reporting from the ground we had some contacts in Lviv this is where we were headed uh, and the, the largest city in the, the western part of Ukraine and, and the place that right now is being discussed as perhaps the seat of government if Kiev falls to the Russians. Yeah, some kind of an asylum city. Uh, we had some contacts on the ground over there. We were speaking with them, tell, asking them if they can send somebody over like, to pick us up. And they basically said, like, forget about it, guys. It's not an issue. Of it's not money. It's not like you need to pay us or something like that. It's just like if they send somebody to pick us up, it's going to take days until it's going to reach us. And then it's going to take a while until we get there. And it's going to be during curfew time. And there's roadblocks on the way. And if we arrive during curfew time, somebody's going to shoot us and it, it turned into a thing. And we, we were pretty sure that uh, Tomer and I, Tomer, which like uh, he's, he, he did incredible work throughout, throughout the way and you should check his photos online. Um, we were pretty sure that we we're going to spend the night somewhere in the woods, sleeping, uh, trying to figure out how to get out of there. And just by luck, we managed to get a ride with the police car that a contact of a contact of a contact managed to speak with them. And they told us like to go to stand somewhere we've been we've been waiting there for an hour and a half just like the atmosphere the, like the, the air over there is it feels toxic from all the gas coming like all the um, gas pipes coming from uh, the cars and um, we're waiting for those people and suddenly the police stop next to us two policemen stand out they tell us like 
bring in your stuff. And they took us like through the whole, whole line. This is how we measured it. It was actually 40 kilometers. They took us during curfew all the way into Lviv, uh, said goodbye. And this is like, that's how we continue the journey. Unbelievable story. Wow. Uh, Judy, you saw the same phenomenon that Yerden described, this exodus that he saw on the western border with Poland. You saw it in the south. Um, people escaping maybe from Odessa and other places in the southern Ukraine going into Moldova. Um, is the scene similar over there? Uh, well, I don't know what the scene was on the Ukrainian side, but what I can tell you about the Moldovan side, it was something I'd never seen anything like this before. People just pouring on foot through the border under hail, freezing rain, snow. Mm -hmm. You had old people, you know, barely had their legs covered with canes and walkers crossing the border by themselves. Now, also, there was a whole backup on this border. It wasn't 40 kilometers, but the day I was there, I was told it was 12 kilometers. So many people, they just left their cars there and walked. And I met many holding suitcases, not big suitcases, because people didn't take a lot. I, I don't know if this was your experience as yeah, well, yeah. Yardin. People didn't take a lot with them because they knew they had to carry. They were probably going to have to carry things. So they took just the minimum, carrying babies, carrying the, these suitcases in the rain. And people told us they walked for hours. You know, I met a, this woman who, who crossed the border with two kids and she when she got across she just started crying and I said why are you crying she said it was more from joy she was just so happy reaching a safe place to have reached safety right and you know the other thing was amazing sign of you know also we saw terrible things but I you know you also saw the, the goodness of yeah, people that yeah. comes out at times like this there was a whole convoy maybe a kilometer long of of cars parked on the Moldovan side. And these were people who had just come to pick up people they didn't know. To give them a ride. To give them a ride. Some had names, someone told them, or they had the name written on their windshield so someone would know to go to their car. Or they had uh, little uh, business cards with, that someone had given them. But, you know, these people, they owed them nothing. It was just pure kindness. The people came and they brought food from their homes. And Moldova is a very, very poor country. I've never seen such a poor country, actually, in Europe. So you did see that side also, which is very uplifting in a way and inspirational. If you can just add, I think it's important like to understand those people just left everything they had in a second. They, just, they didn't have anything with them. And most of the people out on this journey, they're mostly women and children and older people because men uh, between the ages of 18 and 60 are not allowed to leave the country if they're, if they're fit for army service. Like some of them, if they have like uh, medical reasons, they may leave, but the majority is women and children. Unless we, they uh, have three kids. If they yeah. have three kids, they're allowed to go. With yeah, the th there are some exceptions, yeah. but um, then you have those examples. Like we saw a woman that uh, she, she left with four kids and she carried one of them for about 30 kilometers just walking the whole stretch and they have like just like it's just a regular backpack you see people they dressed as if they were going to theater like we spoke with a person he told us he just like he locked like the office door and apartment and he doesn't know if he's going to come back if the building even stands and like when you see those people on the other side they ask you like they asked us something like uh well what what do you guys think does it make sense to wait uh, because we'll be able to come back to something 
something or should we start our new lives now? And you don't know what to answer, you know? When you arrived to Lvov, mm-hmm. have you been there before? No, it's a very beautiful it's, city. Yeah, this is, uh, Judy, you, you've been there as well. It's a mm-hmm. beautiful place. Beautiful. And, and, and what, do you, what do you find when you get there? It became some of a, a peaceful center, like a sanctuary. There were alarms. Uh, it wasn't attacked directly like in other places. You see... It's, it's the, the Western part in general, the Russians yeah. have not right. yet really crushed like they have the other parts of Ukraine. So basically, everybody is involved. Every single person in the street that you see or everywhere that you go, people are busy preparing stuff, preparing equipment to send to the front, collecting uh, donations, collecting food and stuff for uh, babies and for children. Like we visited this one logistical uh, center. It, was, it used to be an art center and they transformed it into like a local help center. And there were like hundreds of people just buzzing around like ants. And you could see like mountains of diapers and mountains of medicine and mountains of clothes. And like they're separating them into according to sizes like the kids in that age and kids in that age and kids in that age so you saw all those things that they were preparing they're preparing uh, centers to preparing them to accept refugees that coming from uh, coming from the front uh, we visited uh, several places where they were preparing those Molotov cocktails for example where they told this one place where we visited they prepared about 2500 Molotov cocktails when we met them and they were shipping them to the front in order to like uh, to throw them at 10 We saw places where they were forging improvised barricades and starting putting them on the streets in order like to... Pre- preparing for the day the Russians might yeah, arrive yeah, to yeah. Lvov as well. Exactly. And they're also covering, like the city itself, uh, they're covering sensitive places with sandbags. I think it's the National Museum. They were like covering it with sandbags. I saw online now that they were like, trying to wrap like monuments because they have those historical monuments over so, there. So many, you know, jewels and uh, yeah. historical places of significance that they want to keep. Exactly. And, and you see um, a lot of movement on the street. I mean, like, people like uh, at the beginning we thought that the refugees that we see on the street are just like the people with bags and trolleys because they're obvious you can see them but the more we spoke with people you could see that basically every person like every person that we went and talked to they told us that they were running from Kiev or the Donbas I mean further further f- east f- further east people uh, have heartbreaking stories about how it's the second time that they have to leave their homes uh, after like the war started in 2000 people People who ran away from the Donbas and Crimea and those areas in 2014 and now they have to run away a second time exactly people that uh, have to run a second time and it's and, and it's strange because some of them they act cool about it they say yeah we practice we're not hysterical because it happened to us already and other people they say that I, they can't believe that it's happening all over again they have and, to and, start and, again and their just, lives and just within a span of seven years yeah. Judy I want to ask you about the um, uh, so Judy, I want to ask you about uh, the weekend that uh, you spent over there, the Shabbat. A big focus of your trip was the Jewish uh, communities that are now looking for a way to escape out and many are looking to come to Israel. What is it like to spend Shabbat with these refugees in Moldova? I would say it was one of the uh, strangest Shabbats I, I, I ever spent in my life. Uh, we started by going to uh, The synagogue of Chabad in Kishinev in the morning and there was nobody from the local Kishinev community there it was all refugees Jewish refugees from Ukraine among them I met actually several Americans these were Chabad Shluchim who had come from Kharkiv 
okay? Which, which is the, now completely bombed to rubble. Yeah. They had come the day before. A friend who was sitting in the men's section, I was with the women, so he couldn't hear everything. He told me that there were 12 birchot gomel said in the synagogue which, that morning. Which is, for the listeners who don't know what you say, basically, when you thank God for saving, sparing, saving your life. Right. 12 people of about the 30 families that were there. Felt the need to say that they almost experienced death in those recent days. Exactly. And th- then we had lunch. With, with the Chabadniks, there was no meat. This was the first time, and, that, and that's another interesting thing. Their main source of kosher meat in Kishinev had always been Odessa. Which, and now you cannot, that border is only for people to run away. There's really no commercial activity anymore. Exactly. So, uh, so it was a very simple but very nice meal. And from there, we proceeded to another synagogue, Uh, called Agudat Israel, which is really, I guess, the longest-serving um, synagogue for the Jews of Kishinev, where we saw another amazing scene. Now, you have to understand that the total Jewish population of Kishinev is maybe hundreds, a few thousand, no more than that. It, it, mostly when a Jew hears about Kishinev, you think about pogroms right. and, and violence in the past. You don't think about uh, the thriving community that might exist there today. Uh, the, well, I wouldn't exactly call it thriving, but there is a community. And interestingly, there are actually three rabbis there who claim to be the chief rabbi of Kishinev. Of course. So one of them is the Chabad, and the other is this uh, Rabbi Zaltzman, who's a very interesting, uh, charming, uh, charismatic, kind of larger-than-life figure, he has converted his synagogue into a refugee center. And in the women's section of the sanctuary, there, it was all refugee women. Upstairs, every room was filled with refugees. He basically gave over the premises to Ihud Hatzalah, which is an Israeli humanitarian organization, which is doing amazing, amazing work in Moldova with the Ukrainian refugees. And by the way, not only Jewish ones. They give help to anyone who needs it. So And, who are the people you see there in, in that synagogue on that uh, Shabbat evening? Ostensibly Jews, but who knows? Nobody is asking to see any birth certificates there. Mm-hmm. They're all getting served the same food. The diapers go to every woman. She does not have to prove that her... Nobody's asking questions, basically. Nobody is asking questions. And they have also set up tents outside for people to sleep in. Uh, I would say that perhaps the weirdest experience I had... Now, this rabbi, this is another interesting thing, he had his telephone open. And so on did, Shabbat evening. On Shabbat because mm-hmm. this was pikuach nefesh. I mean, you are, this is about saving lives. Exactly. So it's more important than keeping the Shabbat. Mm-hmm. I was visiting the synagogue with two other reporters, and both of them who are Orthodox. And we went into this room. It was, I guess, a war room, basically, where they had computers open with names of Jewish refugees coming in and where they were going to go out, on which buses going where. And the guy who was working this uh, computer was a chassid with long side locks. And my two friends said they had never seen anything. Uh, Complete. Uh, see, a, a Jewish chassid working on a computer on a Friday. Shabbat, yeah, on that, Shabbat. That's a first. They took over. Two blocks away is an Irish pub, classic Irish pub. Hatzalah took it over. 
And we had lunch, uh, second lunch, because I already ate with Chabad, but you know, you can't turn down food on Chabad, right? When it's offered by one of the chief rabbis of the city. And so they had in there, they were making a chulent. Well, some of it had been made before Shabbat, obviously, but some they were making, they said they were making, the ones that was being made during Shabbat was for the Mm non-Jews, the non-Jewish refugees. The one that had been prepared before was for the Jews. And just imagine we sat at a table on Shabbat in Kishinev, in an Irish pub with the chief rabbi of Kishinev eating Chulent, while behind us were people ladling out this chulent in little uh, disposable plates for the refugees. Yeah, quite a story. Yeah. Yarden, t- tell me a bit about the hardships right now of reporting from inside Ukraine. Well, first of all, you marked, like, uh, in the sense of people suspected us. Um, suspected of what? Well, there's a rumor going around, maybe it's true, I don't know, but basically there's a rumor that uh, the Russians sent people weeks and months ago, uh, saboteurs that infiltrated, and now they're trying to cause problems. So me and Tomer were walking around, and a few times a day, every day, just regular people on the street were coming to us and asking to see our IDs and asking who we are and what we're doing. We're like, we're standing outside of a synagogue that we visited and like waiting for somebody to open the door. You wrote a beautiful story about that synagogue in Lvov. Thank you. So we were standing outside uh, waiting for somebody to open the door and trying to get somebody over the phone. And while we're waiting, they're just standing. People came up to us and saying, what are you doing here? Why do you have cameras? We were... Um, waiting again, like at an address where somebody told us we should arrive at this place, you know, to get to this Molotov cocktails workshop and just standing out there, somebody called the police and three minutes afterwards, like they were checking us. And but, this, but, but the, not the same police officers that brought you into the city, they would no. have recognized you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this was happening all the time, all the time. There's this tremendous solidarity between them, but they're suspecting, they told us that we shouldn't take pictures of so many things. because everything is now strategic. Every structure is sensitive. Uh, They told us that we shouldn't expose addresses. We had to turn off the geolocation of our phones. Second of all, it's very hard to find contacts on the ground that uh, can help you just to get by from one place to another to understand where you want to go. What in uh, journalistic uh, jargon people sometimes call fixers. Exactly. It's a fixer. It's a guy. It's a, it's a macher. It's a, it's yeah, it's, it's someone, uh, at least this is something journalists have been yeah. using in uh, war zones yeah. all over the world for decades. And yeah. you're saying now in Ukraine it's difficult to get hold of them. It's difficult because like we're speaking with people and they told us that, that they're willing to help us but they just like they're not available at the moment. I spoke with some colleagues that they told like They were in the midst uh, of a shelling in uh, Kiev and they told us that the fixer called them one day and said, guys, I have to leave you because I'm going to the front lines and picking up a weapon and good luck to you. Mm-hmm. And this happened to us uh, several times. Like we had contacts to people and they told us that they can help us along the way. If like uh, we were trying to find... Uh, for example, a ride to the Moldovian border at a certain point, and they told us that it doesn't make sense for them to go there. If we want to go out to the western border with Poland, we could hop on like a humanitarian van when they're taking out refugees. But to go in the other direction didn't make sense, so it was much, much, much more difficult. And a follow-up question, when you tell people that you meet on the ground, I'm a journalist from Israel. Yeah. 
What are the responses that you receive? We had the feeling that people think highly of Israel. They appreciate it, that we're there. They had like also this sense of, people told us that they identify with Israel in the sense of like a country which has this constant conflict going on because they leave this conflict for several years now. When we had to choose with which passport we're going in, Tomer and I, we both have like uh, foreign passports. We went in with the Israeli. Whenever we had to, we like, we immediately brought it out and people said, Ah, okay. Because we have reported at Haaretz about the frustration on the Ukrainian side from the Israeli policy. Uh, the Ukrainian ambassador here has made some statements about it, and even President Zelensky uh, made some comments about disappointment from Europe. It's not something that you ran into on the ground speaking to people. Well, I think that it's important to understand that there's tons of information and there's tons of disinformation and when you're there you're flooded with information from all directions all the time i think that this hasn't trickled over there to the ground yet mm-hmm. because people it's uh, it's important to emphasize it was really important for people to know what's the stance of israel people kept asking us mm. How is Israel doing? What is Israel, uh, is Israel supporting? Um, wh- wh- what are you writing in your paper? They wanted to Do know. Do you support it, us or the Russians? It was important for them. And we had to explain how we look at things before they started to accept us and said, okay, you can join us. And I, th- I think that a lot, of the, a lot of people there are going to get very, very, very disappointed once they start seeing those things, like, what, like the current Israeli policy. And I was thinking about it while there, that I think that once this news starts to trickle down over there, it's going to be more difficult for Israelis like reporters to do their job because they're going to trust us less, not as before. Interesting. Judy, what were you hearing about from the people that you met? What is the Israel that they imagine? And many of the people you met are on their way to Israel. In terms of refugees I encountered at the border, so like Yarden, it was a similar experience when they asked where I was from and you said Israel. Now, you don't always want to say Israel when you're traveling around the world, but yeah. here it was fine to say Israel and, you know, people's eyes lit up often. Mm. Oh, Israel, yeah. shalom, you know, yeah. manishma. They yeah. know even a few Hebrew it, words. It, it, you know, it's interesting because I think Odessa specifically, uh, I, I visited there a few years ago and I remember that even people who are not Jewish have some Jewish, you know, words and jargon because of that city's Jewish history. So, so you know, that doesn't really surprise what you're saying. It's interesting. Yeah. So, so I felt, you know, only welcome Mm-hmm. as an Israeli or as introducing myself as an Israeli there. Um, interestingly, though, uh, we were talking about uh, the charismatic rabbi who I just spoke to on the phone this morning. Among the Jews or some of these Jewish organizations, there's a lot of frustration with Israel. On, over what? They feel Israel should be doing a lot more to help the Jews. It seems to me or it seems to them that there's a lot more focus being put on photo ops waiting for these Jewish refugees to arrive at Ben-Gurion Airport. Then on getting them out. Then on getting them out. There's so much bureaucracy to get out. There's so much documents that you need. Like, give it up now. This is an emergency. Just let people come and let them deal with it once they're here. But the government policy is to actually put all kinds of roadblocks, right? Because they want to limit the amount of people who are not Jews who are coming in right now, which I think by itself... Um, you know, we've, the Haaretz as a newspaper took a very critical stance in the editorial uh, article about this policy because other countries, you know, you guys both saw it. You were on the border with mm. Poland. That's how you got in. You were on the border with Moldova. Other countries are just opening the floodgates. Right. So they're saying that these people I spoke to when it comes to the Jewish world that Israel should be doing more. Yes, 
people who have phones and internet know how to contact those who can bring them out, but they say there are many elderly, sick, poor people who have no means of communications. Someone has to help these people get out. They're in Kharkiv, they're in Kiev, and you know and they're right, lost right and instead you know there's all these celebrations with with the planes landing and uh, the government ministers coming yes, to cut the ribbon exactly so the question is where should they really be focusing their energy today mm-hmm. guys i want each one of you to try to tell me one story one conversation one person you met that really left an impact and i know you have dozens because these kind of reporting trip you meet so many people you see so many places you have such unbelievable conversations with people one that you think very much worth sharing with our listeners I'll start <laughs> a woman Anna I cannot pronounce her last name mm-hmm. 90 years old a Jewish woman I met at a temporary shelter about 30 kilometers outside of Kishinev it is used normally as a Jewish summer camp but now they've converted it into shelter for refugees on their way to Israel or other places and uh, Anna told me uh, how as a little girl in a small little shtetl outside Viznitsa I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly and She and her family fled the Nazis. They were on the road for three months until they got to the Ural Mountains, and that's where they spent uh, the war years, and, and that's how they were saved. This woman now is on the road, running away from the Russians. And uh, a quote from her, which really stuck in my mind and uh, I thought was very powerful, she said, "'As a child, I fled the Nazis. Now I'm fleeing the Russians.'" And to think that... Um... You know, we used to look at the world and think that these were stories of the past. But yeah. no way. Uh, Who would have believed? It's stories of our lifetime. Well, it's really hard to pick just one because I think that, like, we met so many people that told us heartbreaking stories. I think one of them that really stuck with me, to find a positive note in it, uh, there was a woman called Nadia that we spoke with. She escaped. That's the second time that she's escaping. Yeah. She told us about how, during the first time in two thousand and fourteen, tanks arrived literally to her house to to the window of her house in she, eastern Ukraine yeah, in Eastern Ukraine, and she had to fled. And um we we asked her if we if she thinks that it's possible to heal if when when it's over, if it's possible to return to how you were before. And she looked at us and she she looked she she pointed at her face and she asked if we can see a smile on her face. and she had like this this really small smile. And she said that there is something that you can find the strength in you like to laugh again and to continue and to continue to live and to find something to live for. And I think that uh, both Tomer and I were speaking about it, that this was characterizing this incredible resilience and strength that we saw all over with kids, with elderly people, with people that they're having their lives smashed and tore down at the moment. And somehow they believed that they should fight and continue and protect the country. And this was something that was inspiring. Indeed. Yarden and Judy, I want to thank you both so much for coming in today and sharing your incredible stories. And more than that, I want to thank you for your amazing reporting from the ground, which was a great benefit to us at Haaretz. And I encourage our listeners, if you're interested to learn more and read more, keep following Yarden and Judy on Haaretz.com because more interesting stories are coming on this topic. So thank you both very much for being with us today. Thank you, Emil. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode. 
Thank you very much to our producer, Aaron Ehrlich, and to you, listeners. My colleague, Alison Kaplan-Sommer, will be here again on Friday with a new episode of Haaretz Weekend. Until our next meeting, Shalom from Tel Aviv.